Gospel of St. John presents us with seven epiphanies of the Christ, or seven accounts in which someone acknowledges the manifestation of Jesus' divine nature. So then, here at All Saints Church, this epiphany season, we are exploring the seven epiphanies of Jesus as the Christ, presented throughout the Gospel of St. John. Today's sermon text comes from John chapter 6, verses 51 through 69. And these verses record an epiphany of St. Peter concerning the divinity of Jesus that took place in conjunction with the famous Bread of Life discourse in which Jesus stated, I am the bread of life. As we analyze the epiphany associated with the Bread of Life discourse, I want to consider three points this morning. Number one, I want us to consider a hard saying of Jesus recorded by St. John. Number two, I want us to look at the three responses that are in the narrative as people respond to Jesus' hard saying. And number three, in closing, I want to draw some practical applications for you and I here at All Saints Church. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 6, verses 51 through 69. I'm going to read those verses and then pray a prayer of illumination. John chapter 6 Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back They no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, 
do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I pray that you will reveal to us the significance and importance of St. Peter's Epiphany. Father, help us to rightly understand your word and help us to live in light of this knowledge. We pray this by the power of the Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So to begin, let us draw our attention to our first point, the hard saying. Look at verse 51 again. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This verse constitutes a hard saying of Jesus on three accounts. First, in verse 60, the immediate audience declares that this statement is, quote, hard. Second, the three subsequent yet different responses by Jesus' audience infer that this is a hard saying to understand. And third, throughout church history, there have been at least three popular interpretations of this verse, therefore demonstrating that understanding or maybe even applying this verse is in fact hard. And with that being said, in this sermon, I want us to see the three responses that's recorded by St. John in the narrative and simultaneously consider how the church has historically interpreted and applied this verse. And then in conclusion, I want to land in a place of understanding that will allow us to rightly apply this verse here at All Saints Church. I want us to land in a place of confidence that we understand what the text not only says, but what it means. So with that, verse 51 is the hard saying. Now, let us consider the second point. The three responses to Jesus' hard saying. Look at verse 52 and consider the first response. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? John's reference to the Jews indicates those people who were present, yet not actually following Jesus. They are probably best described as skeptics and cynics. They heard of Jesus' rapport, how he was a great teacher and did many miracles, but they were skeptical of who he really was. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 6, John tells us that a large crowd followed Jesus because they saw the miracles that he did on the sick. And some of those people among the crowd were disciples, looking to learn from Jesus. Others were believing in Jesus. And then there was this group that John calls the Jews, those who were curious but opposed to Jesus. This group of people took issue with the idea of eating 
Jesus' flesh. In short, they had an issue with cannibalism. And interestingly, this response by the Jews would go on to develop a theological position within the church concerning the Eucharist. Prior to the Protestant Reformation, it was believed that there was a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of the blood of Christ. The affirmation of this teaching was expressed using the word transubstantiate. And by the Fourth Council of Lateran in 1215 AD, this was accepted as doctrine. And commonly, we refer to this dogma as transubstantiation. Now, when you consider Jesus' response to the Jews, you can understand why the church believed that the Eucharist bread became Christ's body and why they might have thought that the cup of the new covenant turned into his literal blood. Just look at verses 53 through 58. As Jesus responds to these Jews, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Without the larger context of chapter 6, it does seem like Jesus is speaking about the eating of his physical body and the drinking of his literal blood. And not only so, but it seems like eating and drinking are the means of inheriting eternal life. And if you interpret these verses to mean just that, then you are presented with a giant dilemma. And that is this. How can anyone receive eternal life from Christ by partaking of his flesh and blood when he has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father? How do you obtain the substance of Jesus' flesh and blood? For many, the answer to that dilemma is transubstantiation. Because if you take verses 53 through 58 to be speaking about the literal eating and drinking, then in order for anyone to receive eternal life, the bread of the Eucharist must become Christ's physical body and the wine must turn into his blood. This is the only way that it's accessible. And this interpretation also led to an error in the church's teaching that I referenced a couple weeks ago when we considered the epiphany at the wedding of Cana. And that error was this. When people believed that Jesus was talking about literally eating and drinking his flesh and blood, 
then the means of receiving eternal life became the consumption of the Eucharist. The sacraments themselves were thought to justify those who partook in them. If you recall, I cited Calvin who railed against this, stating that it is not the sacrament that confers salvation, but it is God who brings about salvation. And because, Jesus said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, it was thought that all one needed to do in order to receive eternal life was to partake of the Eucharist, to partake of the elements. As verse 51 was hard for the Jews to understand, verses 53 through 58 were also difficult for many of the Jews, or excuse me, many of Jesus' disciples to accept. So in verse 51, we see the Jews not grasping the idea of eating his flesh, being put off by that. And then in verse 60, we see many of Jesus' disciples having trouble understanding his explanation. Draw your attention to verse 60, and let's look at the second response to this hard saying. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The term disciples here in verse 60 is a reference to a group of people among the crowds who were following Jesus. And they are best understood as students who wanted to learn from Jesus as a rabbi. They most likely appreciated his insightful preaching and teaching and were amazed by his miracles. However, these people were not to be confused with the 12 disciples that Jesus personally called to minister as his apostles. This is a subset or a subgroup within the larger group of the crowd. And this group took issue with Jesus' explanation of verse 51. Because as we noted, it does seem like Jesus was talking about eating his literal flesh and blood. So at this point, the Jews are not accepting that. And this larger group of students also is struggling to understand such a verse, such a word, and then even struggling with the application. And the misunderstanding that was shared among the Jews and this group of disciples is also the same misinterpretation that is applied to Jesus' words by the proponents of transubstantiation. And I propose that there are two common missteps of interpretation by those who think that Jesus is talking about the literal eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. First, the most common error in interpreting these verses is to take them out of their larger context. And in isolation, they can be easily misunderstood. However, when they are analyzed within the larger context of John chapter 6, these verses become quite clear and very logical. In fact, they become very palatable. So, for example, verses 35 and 40 are often not considered or perhaps just missed and likely in the immediate context, Jesus' audience did not hear verses 35 and 40 clearly. However, they are parallel verses to verse 51 and verse 54, which are the verses 
that are commonly misunderstood when looking at this passage. So in verse 35, Jesus said the following, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here, Jesus is clearly using the terminology of eating and drinking as metaphors of faith and belief. In context, to come to Jesus in faith is to eat and never hunger. To believe in Jesus is to drink and never thirst. In light of verse 35, the meaning of verse 51 becomes crystal clear. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Because Jesus uses eating as a metaphor for faith in verse 35, the logical and very obvious meaning of verse 51 is not that we are to partake of Jesus' literal body and blood, but rather we are to believe in what his broken body and shed blood represent. Namely, his crucifixion, which accomplished our salvation for us. And this is further demonstrated by taking into consideration verse 40, which says this, For this is the will of my Father, That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. According to Jesus, faith in Him is the means to experience eternal life. And this explicit explanation of terms by Jesus is extremely helpful in understanding the meaning of verse 54 which says the following, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. These two parallel verses, verse 40 and 54, are almost identical in wording, which should be understood as intentional. And again, Jesus is using eating and drinking as metaphors for faith and belief in verse 40. Therefore, we should not understand Jesus' words to mean that we are to eat and drink his literal substance in verse 54. Rather, we are to believe in him and his work. Exercising faith is what it means to eat and drink and subsequently experience eternal life. And I hope you can see that in the parallel verses. Jesus gives us the meaning to the metaphor. So then, isolating verses out of context and not comparing Scripture with Scripture, particularly Jesus' own words in context, constitutes the first misstep by those who are proponents of transubstantiation. Now, the second misstep that is common when it comes to interpreting these verses, has to do with the upper room discourse. The three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record Jesus instituting the Eucharist. However, 
The Gospel of John does not. Therefore, this has caused some to believe that the bread of life discourse is a purposeful foreshadowing of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper in John's Gospel. And this is possible. John could have organized his material in such a way as to introduce the institution of communion at this early point in his narrative. After all, the illustrations of bread and wine, and not just here, but all throughout Scripture, do allude to the Eucharist. Furthermore, this account in John chapter 6 does end with Jesus identifying Judas as the one who will betray him. And this detail here in chapter 6 is shared with the institution of the Eucharist in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. While I take no issue with seeing the bread of life discourse in connection with the Lord's table, a common misstep associated with seeing this text as a Eucharist text is to assume that the references to bread and wine are literal communion elements as opposed to metaphors that Jesus is using. And this too leads to isolation of the text and misses Jesus' own explanation of terms. In other words, one can easily come to this text with their own assumed meaning for bread and wine, i.e. the elements, which are then read into the text. Therefore, Jesus' body and blood on the cross are missed and exchanged for bread and wine at the table. Now, the elements of bread and wine do represent the body of Christ broken and his blood poured out. However, as we've already seen, there is a big difference between thinking that one is to eat and drink the communion elements unto eternal life, and in contrast, believing that one is to exercise faith in Jesus' broken body and shed blood. So, those are the two common missteps that lead to arriving at the interpretation of transubstantiation when approaching these verses. Furthermore, Jesus, in his own words, emphasizes belief. And we see this by looking to the verses prior to the hard saying, but also by considering the verses after the hard saying. So look at verses 61 and through 65. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Here, Jesus clarifies that his subject matter is in fact faith, and not the consumption of his literal body and blood, or even the eating and drinking of communion elements. And this is further understood by his emphasis on the Father's irresistible call and the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration, which lead to faith. 
If Jesus was talking about the consumption of his literal flesh and blood, or even the elements of the Eucharist, then he would have not called into question the faith of these disciples, suggesting that they were not believing, but rather he would have pointed to their need to simply partake, simply to eat and drink. The Jews in verse 52 took offense with the heart saying, some of Jesus' disciples in verse 60 don't fully understand the hard saying in verse 51. But Jesus gives explanation that he is talking about faith. And to further understand Jesus' emphasis on faith, look at verses 67 through 69 and consider the third response to this hard saying of Jesus. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. St. Peter's response to Jesus provides further clarification of what is meant in verse 51. Clearly, Peter draws a connection between faith and eternal life. Now, I'm not suggesting that Peter had a full and developed understanding of the crucifixion at this point. However, the text is clear. He did have faith and understood that faith in Jesus led to eternal life. And notably, Peter's response had nothing to do with eating and drinking the literal body and blood of Jesus or the communion elements. As Jesus engages with the twelve over verse 51, Peter's response has nothing to do with eating and drinking and everything to do with faith. His reply is, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed. So then, it is logical to ask the question, what was Peter believing in? Well, in his epiphany, Recorded in verse 69, St. Peter declares that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Now this title, Holy One, appears 49 times in the Old Testament, with 32 of those references occurring in the prophecy of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, Holy One is a title loaded with significant meaning, including references to the Creator along with the Redeemer, as well as a bridegroom for God's covenant people, and the King of Kings. We don't have time to look at all 32 uses of Holy One in Isaiah, let alone all 49 occurrences in the Old Testament. But for the sake of effect, just listen to a couple of these references. Isaiah 43:15, I am the Lord, your Holy One the creator of Israel, your king. Isaiah 47, 4. Our redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name. He is the holy one of Israel. Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the holy one of Israel is your redeemer. 
the God of the whole earth, he is called. Again, I don't think that Peter had a fully developed theology of the crucifixion at this time. But, by using the term Holy One, I do believe Jesus was revealed to Peter as the Creator, as the Redeemer, as the King of Kings. And therefore, Peter understood his own faith to be resting in the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the Savior of the world, the Holy One. Like the Jews' response in verse 52, Peter's response here in verse 69 would also lead to a theological development within the church. As early as the 14th century, Protestantism began to influence the church's dogma through biblical exegesis. So there was a shift between just tradition and a movement to exegesis. With that, fresh interpretations of the bread of life discourse and the institution of the Eucharist were developed. Men like John Wycliffe would come to the conclusion that Jesus was not talking about eating his literal flesh and blood, but instead speaking about feasting on him through faith. This development would lead to two applications of the Eucharist, of which both were presented as alternatives to transubstantiation. One position was articulated by Holdrick Zwingli, in which he saw the sacraments as a memorial. According to Zwingli, Christ was not present in the bread and wine, as they were only commemorative elements depicting the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. The other position was articulated by Martin Luther and is referred to as sacramental union. Luther argued, it is not the doctrine of transubstantiation which is to be believed, but simply that Christ really is present in the Eucharist. And later in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin explained that while the doctrine of transubstantiation is erroneous, the memorial position is also an unnecessary reduction of the Eucharist as Christ is truly present with his people in the sacrament. And then roughly 100 years after Calvin, the Westminster divines would helpfully articulate the reformed position, stating The Eucharist is a commemoration of that one offering up of Jesus by himself upon the cross once for all. However, the divines would also say that the Eucharist was not simply a memorial, but also a means of communion with Christ and communion with God's covenant people. The divines would also explain that grace was to be received in the sacrament, as one came with faith, believing in what the bread and wine signified. Believing in the broken body and the shed blood was a means of receiving grace. This leads to my final point. 
an application for us here at All Saints Church. And this morning, I have two applications for us. First, as it relates to the epiphany of Peter and his faith in Jesus as the Holy One, the Redeemer, you and I must acknowledge and embrace the words of Christ when he said this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Justification by faith alone is not a Pauline doctrine. Instead, justification by faith is a teaching of Christ proclaimed by the Apostle Paul in agreement with the totality of Scripture. With that being said, you and I must come to a realization that we are only justified by faith in Christ. You and I are only accepted by God based upon the merits of Jesus in which he satisfied God's wrath for us and then imparted his own perfect righteousness to us. Now, for some of you in this room, my comments may seem pointless, maybe unnecessary. After all, I am preaching to a sanctuary full of saints. However, the reality is that all of us are prone to trust our own various forms of self-justification. As your pastor, let me be honest and transparent with you this morning. I am easily tempted at various points in my day-to-day life to think that my good works are not merely obedience, which then are a pleasing aroma to God, that they bring God pleasure, but I am tempted to also believe that the works that I do, the good things that I do, are merits for God's grace in my life. I am tempted to believe that God accepts me based upon all the good things that I do as a pastor. Now, as a pastor, I conceptually know that this is theologically inaccurate. It is wrong. Furthermore, as one who preaches justification by faith, I am aware of the negative ramifications that come from trying to earn one's righteousness. And yet, I can forget and be tempted to trust in my good works. And if we are all honest, each one of us would admit that we are prone to forget the gospel. In fact, it is easy for us to forget that we are sinners in need of God's grace. For some of us, obeying the cultural command or the cultural mandate in Genesis can easily lead to thinking that our large family is the reason that God accepts us. The same is true with schooling. We provide our children with a private education and we can become righteous in our own eyes, perceiving that the education choices or the education that we provide our children are the means of our justification. 
And if we're honest, some of us think to ourselves, look how good we are. Our kids have never stepped a foot into a public school. Look at our righteousness. Maybe you are not prone to works-based righteousness like me. But I would still bet that you are tempted to other forms of self-justification. You are tempted by other means to self-righteousness. Perhaps you think of yourself as holy relative to the people around you. Because you have lots of kids and they all go to Christian school, you may be tempted to believe that you are righteous in comparison to the family who only has two kids and both of them attend public school. Or perhaps compared to some people in this church who don't even know what the Cantus Christi is, you perceive yourself to be righteous because you not only sing well, but you can sing anything from it. And whatever the case may be, we are all prone to forget that we were once sinners in serious need of an alien righteousness that could only come from Christ on our behalf. And in our forgetfulness, you and I produce all sorts of various forms of self-righteousness which lead to sin and pride in which we boast in ourselves and our good works. Therefore, I exhort you this morning to remember that you are a sinner in need of God's grace and your only means of justification is the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus applied to you by faith. My second point of application has to do with the Eucharist. If you are new to All Saints Church, or if you haven't thought about the substance of the bread and the wine in the Eucharist celebration before, I think it is important for you to understand our practice here at All Saints Church. To be clear, we do not believe in the dogma of transubstantiation. We believe that the sacramental elements remain truly and only bread and wine. Also, we do not believe in the reductionist position that the Eucharist is only a memorial. We do not believe that the only thing we do at the table is remember Christ's body broken for us. Instead, we believe that the bread and wine commemorate the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as his body was broken and as his blood was poured out for our justification. And as I alluded to before in the Westminster Confession, we also believe that we experience grace as we come to the table believing in what the elements signify. Namely, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for us. Furthermore, as Graham Dennis explained in our Sunday School Hour, we also believe that the sacrament of the Eucharist is a means for us to be engrafted into the visible body of Christ. 
So while we maintain that the sacramental elements point to the gospel, we further believe that Christ is present at his table with his people, and therefore we commune with Christ in the Eucharist. To quote John Calvin, we do not deny that God himself is present in his institution by the very present power of his spirit. Furthermore, we also believe that there is a mystical communion with the body of Christ, God's covenant people, as we as a church commune with the Savior and with one another at his table. Therefore, with all that being said, I exhort you to come to the table in faith this morning, believing in what the bread and wine commemorate, and commune with our Lord Jesus Christ and his saints. All Saints Church, I pray that this epiphany season, Jesus Christ would be revealed to you as the Holy One of God. Therefore, I pray that you would trust in him by faith as your only means of justification. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you bow your head with me as we bring our prayers and petitions to the Father? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning recognizing our neediness. We recognize that apart from your grace, we would simply be objects of wrath, sinners deserving judgment. But because of your grace and mercy, you have chosen to adopt us and bring us into your family. And Father, we are grateful for this. As we are prone to forget the good news of the gospel, I pray that by the power of the Spirit, in conjunction with the word preached and read and memorized, I pray that we would not forget the gospel. I pray that we would be trusting in Jesus and not boasting in our works of righteousness. I pray that we would not think of ourselves too highly or think that we are righteous or holy because of something that we have done. I pray, Father, that our hearts and minds would be fixed on the justifying work of Jesus Christ, his body broken, his blood shed. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. prayers. 